Amen. If you would, grab your Bible, turn to John 5, let's read our text today, and then you can have a seat. So we're walking through John 5, we have uh, two more weeks after this one, we're taking our time going through it, it's one of the most significant uh, chapters in regard to affirmation of who Christ is, and so today we're just going to do one verse, if that's all right, and it's going to take us the whole time to kind of look at that, Um, uh, we'll, we'll spend all of our time in verse uh, 36. But let's read 30 through 36, John 5. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If I alone bear witness, bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, speaking of the Father here, and I know that the testimony that He bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. You may be seated. So I want to go back and remind us of where all of this began. Jesus has been giving these great affirmations in regard to his equality to God. He has also pointed us to uh, the Father's testimony of himself. And then last week we looked at um, what was the testimony in the four Gospels of John the Baptist about who Christ is. And so we'll briefly review those things here in just a moment. But today we're going to talk about, in the heart of it, and looking at the works of Jesus, the miracle of Jesus, the things that he did that pointed to the greatness of who he is. All of this stuff in John chapter 5 that Jesus is responding to has come about because of what takes place in verse 8. Go with me down to verse 8 and let's see why they have been questioning and why they've had an issue. So, Jesus has healed a man. And so he says in verse 8, Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, and so the Jews, this is a religious leader, said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, Well, the man who healed me said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, well, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And I want, let's just stop there. I want to, I want to point out kind of, kind of what, what's happening here in the text. A man who had not walked in 38 years, and just like that, as soon as Jesus said, take up your bed and walk, he took up his bed and walked. He had not walked in 38 years. And now he's walking around, he's carrying a bed, he's in the temple, He stopped, and they're asking him, what in the world are you doing? There is nowhere in John chapter 5 where anybody is excited about what happened. I mean, think about this for a moment. If we had somebody in the room this morning who hadn't walked in, let's just say, a year, would we not freak out this morning and just worship and glorify God if all of a sudden... They were healed and they just stood up and they walked and they danced around and they carried things around. So nobody in the text 
is excited about what's happening, particularly the religious leaders. So the man says, listen, I've been this way for 38 years. I'm not being able to walk. And this guy came by and he told me to pick up my bed and walk. And so I did that. The Pharisees, those who knew the heart of God, should have right there in that moment said, tell me your story. What are you, what are you talking about? You hadn't walked in 38 years and all of a sudden you're walking. And so they tell they the man tells them, this is what has happened to me. Instead of going, take us to the guy who healed you because God must be in our midst. They don't do any of that. They are more concerned that Jesus, because it's the Sabbath day, has broken their man-made rule. And they've got to deal with that man-centered perspective rather than worship. You could have had... At this festival, you could have had a mini-revival take place if people would have only just realized God is in our midst and He is healing people. And look at this man, He is evidence of it. But nobody seems to be bowing, nobody seems to be excited. They eventually catch up to Jesus later in the temple and they've got a problem with Jesus. And look at verse 18, and this is the problem they have. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. By the way, just stop there. How ludicrous is it that you have a problem with a man being healed who hadn't walked in 38 years, but you're perfectly comfortable to talk about murdering a man in the temple as well. This is the height, and this is the problem with religious hypocrisy. It always contradicts itself. It always makes a mockery of something. So here they are. They're upset about the man walking, carrying this, but they're okay with talking about killing Jesus. And here's why they wanted to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but 18 tells us, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Now, I'm going to quickly do this, if I can. So in light of that, they're like, okay, who in the world do you think you are? Jesus gives this stack right here, He gives these affirmations as to why he can do what he wants to do on the Sabbath. It's because he's equal to the Father. And so the Father was at work on the Sabbath, and so because they're equal, Jesus is at work on the Sabbath. Jesus is the only one who can fully see everything that the Father was doing, and so Jesus speaks about that. He knows the Father. He sees what the Father's doing, and so he joins in that. The Father also shows Jesus, thirdly, everything that the Father was up to. He revealed that to Jesus. Jesus joined in on that. Old Testament, Father raised people from the dead. New Testament, the Son equal with God, showing this uh, affirmation that Jesus raised people from the dead. Um, The Father gives the role of of judge in, in regard to current circumstances in, in the world. He gives, he gives this role to Christ. He also gives it future. We'll see that in a second. And then Jesus says, as the Father is to have honor, so also the Son is to have honor. So if the Father gets honor, the Son gets the same equal honor because they are both God. The Father has life in himself. In, in, in himself. The Son also has life in himself. And then, because... Um, Jesus has been given this role and, and that's more current time. It also, Jesus now speaks more future time in John chapter 5 and he says the Father has given the Son the authority to judge in regard to the final judgment of those who believe and don't believe. And lastly, the Son will eventually speak one day. 
And he will raise and resurrect every person who has ever died. And they will resurrect. And they will either go to a resurrection of eternal life or a resurrection of eternal um, separation from God in hell. And then Jesus makes an affirmation. So this is his equality. He speaks these things. And then he makes, he says, but there is one who gives testimony about me. And he's speaking, referring to the Father. And when you look at the places in the Gospels, and even in the Old Testament, you see the Father's affirmation about Jesus. And one was the prophets. The prophets wrote about the coming of Jesus. And then as Jesus was about to come, angels would come, and they began to make announcement that the Messiah is coming, the forerunner is going to come, who is John the Baptist. And so angels are involved, sent by the Father to make declaration of who Christ is. At Jesus' baptism, as he's baptized by John the Baptist, the Father speaks out loud. The Spirit comes down as a dove and resides on Jesus. And then in Matthew 17, Jesus goes up on the mountain. Um, his clothes become white. His glory just shines. And uh, a cloud comes and the cloud speaks, makes affirmation of Jesus, and also says to listen to him. At the crucifixion, the Father gives affirmation that what the Son was doing and who He is was satisfying His demands. He was fulfilling what, what the Father had asked Christ to come to do. And then there's the resurrection. Jesus rises from the dead. The tomb is empty. It is still empty. He did not go back into another tomb. And so He's raised from the dead. And then He ascends. And He ascends. He sits at the right hand of His Father, indicating a finished work. And then during this time, He is in, ever living to intercede for his people and then again i told you last week we could have gone higher but i don't want to go higher i heard that you can fall off ladders i heard that today and so um and so second coming he's coming again and he's going to come and he's going to reign and then last week okay breathe okay then last week john five's got a bit of testimony and then last week we talked about john the baptist so he was the forerunner coming to get things ready john the baptist said that jesus was mightier than a prophet he wasn't like himself he's mightier than the prophet Um, he had more worth than a prophet so here's john the baptist the lasso testament prophet he said i'm not even worthy to carry the sandals of the one who is here and he says i baptize you with water but he's going to baptize you with the holy spirit then john testified that jesus would separate the wheat from the chaff he would take this and he would throw it up in the air and the wind would blow and the chaff would blow away and and those who believe they would fall there would be substance that's there and jesus would do that why w4 because he has the authority to judge he's been given this role to judge and so he can separate that and i should have changed this one i didn't do it john prepared the paths but jesus is the path John prepared the path, Jesus is the path, and he spoke about that. He just preached about Jesus. He called people to repentance and to believe in the Messiah. Then he told everyone that Jesus was the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. And then John gave this testimony about Jesus. John and Jesus were relatives. John had been born first physically before Jesus had been born in his incarnation. And John speaks that he who ranks before me is before me. And so how is that the case? Well, Jesus is eternal in nature. He had existed before John had existed. And so John affirms the eternal nature of Jesus. And then lastly, John affirms that Jesus is the Son of God. And we're not done. I got more boxes to add today. So here it is. Just take that in. 
John 5, again, I just want to remind you, is one of the most significant chapters that have ever been written in the history of the world and one of the most significant chapters for the church. If you want to understand who Jesus is, you look at John chapter 5. Jesus answering his critics, affirming why he can do what he can do because of all of these things. And so, so the religious leaders have a problem. You're just giving testimony about yourself. And Jesus is like, well, I can give testimony about myself because I'm God, but I, I don't have to rely on testimony of myself. I've got others who have given testimony about me. So the Father's given testimony. John the Baptist give testimony. Then today we're going to look at the works of Jesus give testimony. So look at verse 36. <clears throat> and let's see that here. First part, first point, the stronger testimony of his works. It was stronger and more significant than even the testimony of John the Baptist. So the first part of 36 says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. So what Jesus means here, and what he's setting forth for us is this, is that while the Baptist testimony of Jesus was really significant, there was something that, had, that held greater weight to affirm who Christ was than John's testimony. And that was the very things that Jesus was accomplishing and doing in Israel. So John was a just man. John was a holy man. But John the Baptist was just a man. And so Jesus says, I I don't have to have the testimony of man to affirm who I am, even though the testimony of John gave affirmation. Now, let me remind you and I, John the Baptist... I love that guy. He's so amazing. I think there's so many things to learn about him. But if you'll remember, John preached Christ-centered preaching, and he called out sin from the religious leaders, and he called out the sin of the king. King Herod had stolen his brother's wife, Herodias, and made her his own wife. And John the Baptist said, That's wrong, King Herod. You should not do that. Herodias was upset about that. And eventually John is arrested and John is put in prison where he begins to sit. Now, I don't know if this happened in your life or not, where things are going really well and spiritual success and things are going great and all of a sudden it's just not going so well. I mean, John was significant in the beginning part of the New Testament and now he's just sitting in a cell. He's not preaching. He's not baptizing anybody. Nobody's hearing anymore. He is locked up in a way. And then John begins to wonder, gosh, is Jesus really the Messiah? He's kind of wrestling with the reality of things, and he thinks about it. And so he says to some of the men he's been investing in, go and ask Jesus and go talk to him. So he sends his disciples. They have a conversation with Jesus. And this is what Jesus says to them. This is Matthew eleven four, And so Jesus answered them, and he says, You go tell the Baptist this. And he tells his, John's disciples, This is what you're hearing me do. This is what you're hearing the people talk about. And you're even seeing what I've been doing. So he says, You go tell John what you hear and what you see. And this is what they were hearing, and this is what they were seeing. The blind were receiving their sight. The lame were walking. Lepers were cleansed, the deaf could hear, dead people were rising from the dead and were alive again, and the poor have good news preached to them. In other words, go tell John the Baptist 
what I am doing, and it will tell John the Baptist that what I am doing gives evidence and confirmation that I am truly the Son of God. The works were enough. This is what Jesus tells John's disciples to go tell him. Look what I am doing. Look what you are seeing. Look what you're hearing people talk about what I've done. You go tell John that. The works of God, the works of Christ, are to be a strong testimony. Now listen, church. We live in a day and time where obviously Jesus isn't physically walking around raising people from the dead and healing lepers and all that kind of stuff. We didn't get to see what first century um, people got to see. But I want to remind us that when we come to these stories, because we don't see them in our day and time so frequent as they did, stop down at those and just marvel that there was nothing that could stop Jesus, nothing that could stop Jesus. Could the wind stop him? Could the waves stop him? No, he actually slept through a storm. Demons could not stop him. Satan could not stop him. Stop down at the incredible miracles that we read in the New Testament and marvel at the power of Christ. Now, I want to deal with one more thing before we move on, and it's this. There's something that's affirmed all the time. It's on television right now as we're in this room speaking differently, and it's called the prosperity gospel. And it says this, if you really walk with God and you really have deep faith and you're going to have a lot of money and things in your life are going to go really well, you will prosper. John the Baptist's life shatters the nonsense of that thinking. Here's the last Old Testament prophet. Here's the one who prepared the way. Just look at the things that were true about him that he said about Jesus, but were also true about him. So here's this one who's this great fulfillment of Scripture And at the end of his life, you know what happened? He just was ushered into the ease of retirement, right? He just went to the Mediterranean coast and, you know, just sipped tea, if they had tea back then, and just just enjoyed the sunshine on the beach in the Mediterranean coast. You know, no, no. They laid his head down like this. And they took a big old sword and they cut his head off. And then they put it on a platter. And they brought it into the room and they mocked the name of John the Baptist. We're living in a day and time where our world has kind of been turned upside down. We, we, it's not the way it has been. And I just want to say this and we're going to move on. Nobody in this room deserves anything. John the Baptist didn't deserve, he didn't earn, he didn't earn a good, healthy, hopeful retirement. What he did get was eternal life with God in heaven. And he will be resurrected. He will be resurrected at the Son's voice as well. And that head that's been separated from his body, it will be reunited. And we will see John the Baptist. We will worship Jesus with John the Baptist. So, the, so this idea of God is this vending machine God. He's this God who's just going to fix everything. He's this God that we're going to have, have enough of this and that. That is not biblical. It's not taught. The Apostle Paul as well, who wrote 13 New Testament letters, also had his head put on a block and they cut it off as well. This idea of the prosperity gospel is false. It is a false gospel. It is not a true gospel. And it should be repudiated. So here's John giving this testimony. John comes back, sends his disciples, go talk to Jesus, and Jesus says, you go tell John this, that 
I'm healing people and raising people from the dead. And that gives evidence as to who I am. And so, John, you've got to be content with that. The works that I'm doing are enough. Here's the second thing this morning, second part of verse 36. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The first part there. We've got three things here uh, under point number two. So there were very specific things that the Father asked Jesus to do. So anything that you and I see in the Gospels that Jesus is doing, guess what? The Father asked Jesus to do those things. So every, every sermon, every healing, every miracle, every casting out of a demon, this was in line with the unity of the Father and the Son. And so again, see the unity, the unique unity of the Father and the Son. And so Jesus said, the, the, the Father has given me works to accomplish things to do. And that's the next part he says there, has giving, given me, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. This, in other words, he says this, I have come to finish what the Father's asked me to come and do and to finish. And so Jesus would carry this through all the way to the very end of His life, and He will also carry through everything that the Father has purposed through the end of time until time is not there anymore. So let me, let me remind us of some things that Jesus finishes. So John 19, 28 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, he's nailed to a cross. He's been bleeding. It's been a long day. It's been a long night. And to fulfill the Scripture, which was always his passion, to fulfill the Scripture, he said this. He said, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. And so a a jar full of sour wine stood there, and so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it up to his mouth, and he opened his mouth, squeezed his mouth around it, got some of the sour wine in there, and he said this. He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Very last act, he just continued to trust in his father that the father was going to take care of things, and he finished the work, dying for us on the cross. Here's another aspect of the finishing work of Christ. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 25. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. So he will reign, he will work, he will accomplish, he will do the things until all the enemies of God are under the very feet of Jesus. Then Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, in Ephesus 1 verse 22 says this, And he, the Father, put all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and gave him Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And the reality is simply this. No one ever has been able to do perfectly everything that the Father asked them to do but Jesus Christ. Not only could Jesus do everything that the Father asked, but Jesus could complete and finish everything that the Father asked. And so that's why He's so significant. That's why Christ was sinless. He could do what the Father demanded and asked, and He could finish what the Father 
demanded and asked. And so that's why we worship Him, and that's why He gets this incredible, great honor. And so Christ has come to do this. And so, so Jesus says, the Father's asked me to do some things and to finish those things. I will finish those things. Here's secondly, under the second point here is these works that Jesus did in the Bible, they aren't just stories. They were real events. These were real things that happened. Now, we, you know, when our kids are little, we read Cat in the Hat, and we read these stories, and we read Bible stories. And I just I don't want to remind you that the stories in the Bible are true. That means that Lazarus really was dead for four days when he was called forth out of the tomb. That means those who were lepers, they were really cleansed. That means those who couldn't speak, all of a sudden could speak. Those who couldn't hear, they could hear. All of these stories are true. So when he takes a couple of fish and some bread and he multiplies it and he feeds upwards of 20,000 people, that's not, um, they had a, a drive-by cart came by or they ran to the local 7-Eleven and, you know, got some, some quick mini tacos and stuff. No, 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 no. No, he multiplied all of that and they, they gave it to upwards to 20,000 people and then there were 12 basketfuls of all that stuff left over, enough for every disciple to see, my God supplies every need and he does so abundantly. And so all of these stories are true. And our skeptical world says, well, that's, that's, not, that's not realistic. It's not realistic. What about scientific evidence and et cetera, et cetera? Let me just tell you, our God created science. Nothing stops our God. He's over every single thing. He's sovereign over all of it. And so all of this is absolutely true. And just as James says, I'm going to show you that I have faith in the manner in which I live. I don't just say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I don't ever obey and don't ever do anything. Authentic faith says this, yeah, I believe, but I give evidence of my belief in my obedience, my works, how I live, how I follow. I just don't speak some words. And so Christ gave evidence for who He is by the incredible, powerful things He did in these miracles. And so the manner in which He lived and the words in which He was doing affirmed who He was in their midst, and they should have embraced that. They should have affirmed it. And so the second point is, the testimony that the works of Jesus give, one, the Father asked him to do some specific things, and guess what? He did them. And what an amazing thing it is to read about them when he did them. And thirdly, the works bear witness that the Father sent Jesus. And that's what he closes with there in verse 36, or almost closes. Bears, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So on your seat is a piece of paper, and I want you to grab it. So John loves this phrase, bear witness. So we're going to read fast. Follow along. These are all the places in John's gospel where he writes this phrase, bear witness, about who Jesus is. And so so Jesus says here, the works bear witness that the Father has sent me. Well, there's others who do that as well. All right, number one, 
the witness of the Father. So we've already read 530, here's 537. And the Father who sent me has, has himself borne witness about me. John 8, 18. The Father who sent me bears witness about me. Let's go to point two. Jesus bears witness of himself. In 8.14 he says, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. 8.18 I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. John the Baptist bore witness about Jesus. John 1.7 and 8. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The disciples were to bear witness about Jesus. John 15, 27. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. John 19, 35. John writing of himself, the writer John. He who saw it has borne witness, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. John 21, 24. This is the disciple, again, John the, John the Baptist, John the Apostle, who is bearing witness about these things. Jesus' works, we're talking about that here. John five thirty six. we've already read that. Go to John ten twenty five. right there. Jesus answered them, I told you, you do not, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me. Jesus stated on another occasion that those who had seen all he did and refused to believe were strongly guilty of a great sin. So in John 15, 24, he said, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen, and they hated me and my Father. The Scriptures bear witness. John 1, 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, this is the back page, in case you're wondering, they're not on the front page, it's on the back page. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. John five thirty nine. Next week we'll talk about this. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. 46. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Also, all through the Gospels, um, transformed lives bear witness about who Christ is. The Samaritan woman bore witness. The town of Sychar bore witness. John chapter 9, the blind man's going to bear witness. The crowd, look at the crowd after Lazarus' resurrection in John twelve seventeen. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to bear witness. They couldn't stop talking about that Lazarus had come forth from the grave. And number 8, the Holy Spirit bears witness of Jesus. John fifteen twenty six. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So church, listen to this this morning. So when Jesus says here, listen, what I am doing, raising the dead, healing the blind, making the man whose hand couldn't, couldn't be straightened out, when I straightened it out, when I touched the leper and they were healed, when I cast out demons, every single thing that I do, it bears witness, what? That the Father sent me to do this work, to accomplish and do these very specific things. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, the testimony of John was significant, 
But there's something that gives greater significance and greater testimony, more powerful testimony as to who I am, and it is the things that I am doing in your midst. And when Jesus was doing these things in the midst of the people, let me just, let me just say three things here. The heart of God for the broken was so clearly portrayed. Can you imagine not ever being able to? Have you watched on YouTube? I love getting on YouTube, and I'll just be honest, I tear up every time. When I see these little kids or teenagers get these cochlear implants and they hear for the first time, I don't know if you've ever seen that before, that is just unbelievably, just, just to see somebody's face light up who has never heard to hear. And that's with the device. When Jesus healed, it was full restoration of hearing. And it just revealed the tender heart of God in ministering to the broken. Secondly, it revealed that God has power over matter. Matter doesn't stop him. Let me just remind us. Demons, death, sickness, blindness, leprosy, paralysis of any kind, wind and wave, mute, deaf, bleeding condition, could not stand up to the power of Jesus. They wanted to... Y'all remember that they wanted to stone him twice, and what did he do? He just walked through the crowd, and they couldn't stone him. Just to remind you, our God is powerful. He is powerful. He is almighty, and no one can stop him. Well, how did the religious leaders look at Jesus? What did they think about what he was doing? I want you to go to Matthew 12, and I want to show you what they thought. And we're going to finish up here after this they should have worshipped they didn't so in Matthew 12 beginning verse 22 they couldn't really deny that miracles were taking place but what they did was they began to attribute what Jesus was doing to the power of Satan. So in Matthew 12, 22, it begins to say this. And by the way, look up here just for a moment. This is a triple whammy, okay? I would think just trying to cast out a demon would be pretty hard. I would think just trying to make somebody who can't speak, speak. Um, we got a triple whammy right here. Just kind of up the ante. You've got a demon-possessed man. You've got a man um, who was blind, and you've got a man who can't speak. And this man's brought to Jesus. And, and so here's the triple whammy. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. And Matthew just says, and he healed him. It wasn't a complicated thing. He just healed the man. So that the man spoke and saw. Just stop, with that, stop for a moment. You remember how cute it is when our kids are... 18 months old and and they kind of they start saying mama dad dad and they start saying other things and we're like oh how how awesome how great this is a grown man grown person who's immediately healed and the tongue can form words immediately just immediate healing the man begins to speak and it says this in 23 and all the people were amazed and said can this be the son of david what referencing could this be the messiah but look at 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. And so knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, 
and no city or house is divided against itself will stand. He's showing them how ludicrous it is for them to think about that he's actually, if he's of Satan, that he's actually using Satan to cast out Satan. I mean, why would, why would Satan want to divide his kingdom? So, so, he, so he says, and if Satan casts out Satan, 26, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, Jesus says, then the kingdom of God has come among you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. And what Jesus is saying there is, guess what I'm doing? I'm plundering those that have been enslaved by sin and the enemy, and I'm plundering the strong man because I'm stronger, because I'm the Son of God. And then it says in 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now listen, church. I would have hoped that we all would have fallen at the feet of Jesus that day in worship, but it didn't appear that anybody did. And before we get real high and mighty, that we would never respond like they did. Um, These people that knew the Scripture and were ready for the Messiah in regard to knowledge... Their hearts weren't there. Said, you're doing this. You're, the, you're doing this by Satan. And they attributed the work of the Son of God to Satan himself. It's blasphemy. It's horrible. Could have been in a powerful, powerful thing. But if the works of Jesus are not enough, what do we do? We look to this all the time. What, what happened on the cross? A work of God happened there. That he was actually able to bear the sin of man in his body and become the sacrifice that satisfied the Father, accomplishing what the Father had asked him to do. So we must affirm that Jesus did all of these things. And by the way, he's still powerful. Is he afraid of... The chaos that COVID-19 has brought to our world. No, he's allowed it to come to our world. And so we trust him. That he's sovereign over every single thing. And so we move now from this verbal teaching of, of demonstrating, okay, who he is but then John, all through his gospel, gives visual pictures of what Jesus did. And so I want to build, as we close, more visual testimony of who Christ is and why he is the Son of God and why we should believe in him. John chapter 2, Jesus goes with the disciples to Cana. His mother is there. It looks like she's serving there. They've run out of wine. The groom's going to be embarrassed. She comes to Jesus and says, hey, they run out of wine. He's like, Mom, why are you bothering me with this? It's not my time. And then she tells the servants, whatever he tells you to do, I would do it. I would do it. 
And so he tells the servants to fill up these ceremonial jars that were used for ceremonial cleansing, fill them all the way up to the top. And it doesn't say that Jesus snapped a finger, he didn't do hocus pocus, he didn't have a stick. It, it just says that the best wine that you could have completely filled up everything. And so in John chapter 2, he turns the water into wine in Cana, and John writes, and this is the first of his signs that he did to show who he was. So to build the glory of God, John, in his gospel, gives us that picture, and Jesus did so many other things. At the end of John chapter 4, about 25 miles away, it was a city called Capernaum. Jesus had come back, he's in Cana, and he's in Cana, this royal official who's likely connected to King Herod's court, hears that Jesus is back in Cana, this royal official's son is dying. And so the man walks 25 miles, he may walk 25 miles, maybe all this week in one day, so he walks 25 miles, he gets to Cana, he finds Jesus and says, will you come back with me to, to Capernaum? Because my son's about to die, and, and I need you to come and heal him. And Jesus says, I'm not going, but go, your son will live. And the man has a dilemma right there in that moment. So do I stay and try to convince this guy to come back with me to Capernaum, or do I just trust what he told me? And so the man, big, big moment, he just believes, and he walks away from Jesus and begins walking 25 miles back. He has to spend the night somewhere because the next morning he meets the servants who are running down the road and they have a conversation and said, your son's healed. And he said, well, what time was my son healed? And they said, it was 7 o'clock. And he immediately realized that was the same time that Jesus said, go home, your son will live. And so he healed the official son in John 4 to prove that he has power over sickness and death. John chapter 5, this is the one we're dealing with. You may be sick of hearing this story. I've been telling it over and over. You're going to hear it two more weeks, and then we'll move on. He heals a man. I, I can't get over it. He heals a man who had not walked. Listen, he hadn't walked in 38 years. 38 years. 38 years. And Jesus says, get up and walk, and he does. John chapter 6. We're almost there. Upwards to 20,000 people have come. Hey, Philip, how are we going to feed these people? <laughs> are you kidding me? How are we going to feed these people? Well, there's this Andrew who finds this little boy, only smart kid in the whole crowd. He's brought a lunch. And he's got some fish and he's got some bread. And Andrew brings it to Jesus. Jesus grabs it. He lifts it up to his father and he blesses it. And about 20,000 people are fed that day. Powerful miracle. He can multiply and he can feed 5,000 people. And then, after this miracle, Jesus is tired. Matthew 14 tells us that Jesus goes up onto the mountain because he gets news that John the Baptist has just lost his head and he's dead. And he gets the disciples and they get into a boat and he says... I'll meet y'all on the other side. He goes up on the mountain, he prays, he comes down, it's nighttime, they're a considerable distance from the land, and Jesus just starts walking on the water all the way across the lake. And so in John chapter 6, he commands water droplets to hold up his sovereign body, and he walks on the water. So John 6, some awesome things we're going to look at there. My personal favorite in John, we got a lot of them. 
The blind man that's healed in John chapter 9 is so funny. I, would, I can't wait to meet this guy because he just says some things to the religious leaders that just make you want to laugh. He's like, what, what do you mean this guy opened the eyes, my eyes, and you don't know where he's come from? Basically, the blind man just saying, you don't have a clue that this is God who just healed me, and y'all don't even know this? So in John chapter 9, a man who was born blind, his eyes never worked, ever worked. And Jesus put some mud on them, and they work. Well, big one. A couple years we'll get there, because it's going to take us forever to walk through John. We're going to get to John chapter 11. And there's this guy who's a really good friend of Jesus, and he dies. And Jesus delays going to Bethany four days. When the time he gets there, Lazarus has been in the tomb four days, and and, uh, and the sisters are like, okay, no, we're not rolling away the stone. He stinks. He's been dead for four days. And Jesus is like, hey, take the stone away. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And a man who's been dead for four days, four days dead, comes to life and he walks out of the tomb. And you remember what we read a while ago? The people who saw that, what do they do? They continue to bear witness that they had seen Lazarus walk out of the tomb. And this is the famous place in John chapter 11 where he says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Well, a cross happens on a Friday night and some women who love Jesus, kind of part of what they were doing, wake up on a Sunday morning and they're going to go to the tomb and they hadn't really thought this through. There's a big stone that's been rolled in front of the tomb, but they brought a bunch of spices and they're going to anoint the body of Jesus with these spices. Now, they hadn't thought through how they were going to get the tomb away, and they hadn't thought through that he's been telling them that on the third day he's going to rise from the dead, and they show up, and the stone's been rolled away for them. But there's nobody to anoint because the king of the world has risen from the dead, and he shows that the grave cannot hold God. God conquered death, and the sign of the resurrection in John chapter 20 proves that he is who he said he is. Lastly, I can't stop going back to this one because I just can't wait for this one. I can't wait to be with him. He's coming back. Did you know that? As he went, he's coming back from the sky, from heaven's throne here. And when he comes back with the vast array of heaven's army he will have a sword in his mouth revelation 19 tells us and he will slay all of god's enemies and he'll set up his kingdom in revelation 19 same author john writes that jesus christ is coming back again and this time when he comes paul writes every eye is going to see him there's not going to be anybody who's going to miss this coming everybody is going to see him And so I want to remind us as we finish of this reality. Take it in. This is John 5's testimony where it points to places all over the Bible and says this, this is why Jesus is worthy of worship. This is why Jesus is worthy to yield our lives before him. And so I have a new block this morning. I have a new tiny box next to our big boxes to remind us that whatever happens in this life 
it's going to be okay if you know Jesus. What does that one say? Death. Whole world's afraid of dying. Just dominates mankind. How tiny is death compared to King Jesus? Is there anything to be afraid of? Because if we're his, we're in his hand, and we're going to be with him forever. So there's nothing that's greater than him. And John 5 over and over and over says, this is who Jesus is. This is why he's important and why he's worthy of worship. And this majestic power of the Son of God, if you know the Son of God this morning, guess what? Now lives inside of us by majestic God whose name is Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our future inheritance. And that power is in us. So next week, one more, one more set of boxes. We're going to look at the scriptural testimony next week of what the scripture says about who Christ is. And uh, you, won't, you don't want to miss that. Is that not powerful to look at that? Is that not just powerful to behold? That's just John chapter 5 pointing to all these things to see the significance of who Christ is. All right, let's pray.